Welcome. Please accept Jim and John's invitation to join them as they once again ask each other, what do you think about? Hey, Jim, what do you think about Lost Continents? I've always, I, I've always thought it was the idea of them was pretty cool. Yeah, me too. I've always been curious about them. So I decided to dig into the subject a little bit, and I learned some pretty interesting stuff. Thought I'd share it with you. Sounds good to me. Proceed. I suppose we should start with what's a continent before we get to how do you lose one. Turns out that basically continents float on the Earth's molten inner core. Wait a sec. You meant to say the molten layer that surrounds Earth's hollow core, right? Yeah, sure. And we know they do this. And since they float, they move around too. That's called continental drift. And most of us have heard of that. Ah, my favorite installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, Continental Drift. <laughs> but what makes a continent a continent is the type of rock that it's made of. It's made of less dense rock than the rocks it's floating on. And continental boundaries are defined by the edges of these rocks or cracks in the outer shell of the molten earth that we're standing on. And these are called continental plates. So a continent is defined as what is essentially a chunk of rock that is floating and rubbing up against other floating chunks of rock. And this is what causes earthquakes, basically. If anyone wants a more in-depth discussion of these processes, they should search for plate tectonics. So as a kid in school, I learned there were seven continents, North and South America, Asia, Europe, Africa, Australia, and Antarctica. Well, it turns out that's not true at all. Well, at least not completely true. Do you notice anything about the continents in that list? They're all the big parts that stick up out of the water and are easily visible on a map or a globe. Yeah, I know all about that. Have you ever heard of Zealandia? <laughs> nope, can't say it I have. Zealandia is a large, submerged mass of continental crust that subsided after breaking away from a larger prehistoric continent called Gondwanaland about 80 million years ago. It seems to have submerged about 23 million years ago, and 93% of it is completely underwater. New Zealand and the surrounding islands are the parts that stick out. It seems Zealandia doesn't get the respect it deserves simply because most of it is underwater, and it really doesn't look that pretty on a map. There are others, too. Sahul and Sunda are continents that are mostly underwater now, but at one time were not. And these are pretty large, and they're both near Australia. Never heard of them. Yeah, we tend to call Australia a continent in its own right, but it looks like it's really just the parts of Sahul that stick out of the water. So, as always, terminology is a problem. And the parts of Sunda that stick out are called Java, Sumatra, and Borneo, among other things. So it clearly is possible, and it really does happen, that continents that were once above ground are now almost completely submerged by the ocean, and that's how they become lost. So now that we know how to lose a continent, you have, of course, heard of the most famous lost continent, Atlantis, right? Naturally. You can't host a podcast like this and have not heard of Atlantis, John. But I think everyone's at least heard of that one. Did you know there are other similar lost continents and civilizations? I do. But I'll allow you to carry on without stepping on your toes. 
Unless, of course, you don't name the ones that I know. Okay. The ones that I know of are not nearly as famous as Atlantis and more or less are copies of Atlantis, but it's interesting nonetheless. I'm not really going to go into detail on these, but feel free to check out Lemuria and Mew on your own. Ah, dang it. Those are the two I knew. And if I recall correctly, Mew is pretty much just a cut and paste of Lemuria. In fact, even the name Mew is derived from the M-U in the middle of Lemuria. I can't remember who came up with the concept, though, but I do know that Madame Blatavatsky used both in her theosophical teachings. I've always been fascinated by Atlantis and its place in pop culture. I'm a big science fiction fan, and it seems like myths and legends around the topic of Atlantis are a genre unto themselves. I did not realize just how iconic this subject is until I started digging in. Atlantis has been discussed and speculated about for at least 400 years. There was a lot of speculation in the late 19th century that Atlantis was somehow related to the Aztec or the Maya. In his 1870 novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne had people walk from a submerged Nautilus, that was the name of the submarine, on a sightseeing expedition to Atlantis, which lay in ruins in the Atlantic Ocean. Good book. More recently, though, the approach to Atlantis in fiction has changed. More frequently than not, Atlantis is inhabited by people who once breathed air, but now breathe water and have adapted to their watery kingdom. They have an advanced civilization in their own right and are often depicted as adversaries to the surface dwellers. People have even commercialized the name to the point where there was a resort with a hotel and a casino in the Bahamas called Atlantis. Oh, and don't forget television's man from Atlantis. He was from Atlantis. Yeah, strangely enough. I think it's time, though, to talk about the origins of Atlantis. Atlantis was first mentioned by Plato in a dialogue he wrote called Timaeus, in which three guys, Timaeus, Critias, and Hermocrates, prepare a reply to a discussion they had had with Socrates the day before, and they wind up having a gigantic conversation about life, the universe, and everything. During this giant fictional discussion between these guys, Critias describes a war between Athens and a place called Atlantis. The history of Athens and Atlantis and the war between the two was described in the notes of a guy named Solon. Solon was an ancient Greek legislator, poet, and a historian who had traveled the known world. The story has it that Solon visited a city called Sais in Egypt, and he was told the story of Atlantis by the priests there. A side note, Egyptian priests received Solon because the Egyptians considered the Athenians as kinsmen. They believed they worshipped the same gods, albeit called different names. For instance, the Egyptian goddess Neith was misnamed by the Greeks as Athena. Anyway, according to Solon, the priests told him of a war that occurred 9,000 years prior between Athens and a place called Atlantis. Atlantis is described as a very advanced civilization, rich and prosperous with military might second to none. And they are also described as having hot and cold running water and plumbing. Did you know that the ancient Romans had indoor plumbing? And dig this shit, or rather, flush this shit. The Minoans had flush toilets in the 18th century BCE. Take that, Sir Thomas Crapper. Yeah, so Solon returns to Athens and shares what he had learned from the Egyptian priests. Atlantis was described as a large island nation situated somewhere in either the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. 
I think it's the Mediterranean Sea for reasons you'll hear in a few minutes. But anyway, Atlantis's history begins with the god of the sea, Poseidon, and his human wife named Cleto, whose children formed the royal family of Atlantis. The home Poseidon built for Cleto was built in the middle of five concentric rings of water on top of a high hill in the very center of the island. Poseidon caused both hot and cold springs to form, thereby supplying the island with the hot and cold running water that we described earlier. According to legend, Cleto gave birth to five sets of twin boys, and the first boy born of the firstborn set of twins was Atlas, who was made king of the island by his father, Poseidon, hence the name Atlantis. Atlantis becomes a great trading partner. They built a channel that connected each of the five concentric rings of water to the ocean, and thereby could move huge amounts of goods in and out of the city. By all accounts, they were extremely prosperous. Leadership in Atlantis was hereditary. There were ten rulers that were descended from the ten children of Poseidon and Cleto. So by definition, they were all demigods, humans injected with god DNA. Over time, though, the rulers stopped following the laws that Poseidon had provided them with and started doing stupid things like marrying mortals and becoming greedy. You know, John, it's weird, but demigods seem to have a thing for human poon. Reference the Zeus myth cycle or Genesis 6 at your convenience. Well, they started trying to expand their power by conquering neighboring lands. So Zeus sees what's going on in Atlantis. Men had abandoned the laws given to them by the gods and were acting like evil men. Keep in mind now, Athens is protected by Athena, Zeus's wife. She's undoubtedly unhappy that these Atlanteans are attacking Athens. So I'm sure she's all in Zeus's ear. And I can hear it now. You know what your brother Poseidon is up to, dear? Why, he's got his minions waging war against my poor Athenians. And what are you going to do about it, mister? Ugh, bad choice for an opponent in war. Yeah, it was. So how does Athens win? Well, I'll give you a brief summary. Well, remember, Atlantis was full of pride and greed. And because of their military might, their leaders decided they should engage in some empire building. So Atlantean forces were engaged in wars all around Europe and Asia, including Egypt, and stretched very thinly. So they wind up losing to Athens. And by losing to Athens, they wind up losing all over the place, thereby leading to the liberation of Egypt, for which the Egyptians were eternally grateful to the Athenians. Right after losing to the Athenians, Atlantis experienced a massive earthquake and terrible flooding all in a single day, thereby becoming wiped from the earth without a trace. Undoubtedly, this was Zeus's judgment. Atlantis was no more. Solon eventually returns to Athens and brings this story with him. Interesting stuff. But I would think, though, that as one of the original Greek pantheon, Poseidon's godly powers would be comparable to Zeus's? And he could have done more to save Atlantis? I don't know. There is an interesting parallel, though, to the Judeo-Christian myth that humans turned from holy laws and were punished with flooding. So, where do we go from here? So, is this true? Was Atlantis real? You tell me! <laughs> Solon lived about 150 years earlier than Plato, so they weren't exactly best friends and any description of Atlantis would have been at best third-hand. But they were related on Plato's mother's side. That's why he had Solon's notes. Keep in mind, when making a point, Plato liked to use illustrative examples. 
He was using Atlantis as an example of what happens to nations that become prideful and use their military might for the wrong purposes. Greed and empire building, and not for defensive reasons. Ah, parable. Right. So modern academics consider Atlantis to be nothing more. Just a made-up example Plato used to illustrate his point. What do skeptics call Atlantis? I don't know. Atlant isn't. <laughs> uh, well, do you think it could be true? Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe? What kind of a wishy-washy gym-type answer is that? Well, Plato inserted some dialogue from Socrates that indicated it's no made-up story, but a true account. And there have been some archaeological discoveries that may or may not refer to Atlantis. Also, let's refer to some things that we seem to know about Atlantis. They had hot and cold running water springing from the earth. We have those things too, but we generally don't think of them like that. Hot springs occur naturally in volcanic areas, as do springs that aren't hot. We're also told in the legend that the island and its civilization were destroyed in a single day by earthquakes and flooding. In volcanic regions of the Earth, we know that large earthquakes do occur. And what follows large earthquakes? Tsunami. These could easily destroy any cities on an island in their way. All we need as an illustrative example is the tsunami that hit Japan in 2011. In that tsunami, more than 120,000 buildings were destroyed and more than a million were damaged. Over 15,000 people lost their lives. The run-up height of the waves in that tsunami were 128 feet and traveled inland as far as six miles. Man, I can't tell you how hard I tried to think of something funny to come up with and what follows large earthquakes. <laughs> and I couldn't think of anything. Uh, well, it'll come to you. I mean, just keep at it. Yeah, tomorrow. Right. Some people believe it refers to the island of Thera, now called Santorini, in the Aegean Sea. There was a story about this in the New York Times on October 25, 1970, that put forth this position. Thera and Asperanci, islands now, were once part of a larger landmass that was called Strongheil. It literally exploded apart in 1500 BC due to volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and flooding caused by the sea rushing in to fill the void left by the volcanic caldera's eruptions. I saw a History Channel show about that theory. It was pretty cool. Archaeologists and geologists have found all kinds of evidence that this event actually happened. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a guy named Arthur Evans discovered the remains of the Minoan civilization on the island of Crete, and he discovered a city he called Knossos. Well, what do you know? He came up with the name by using the same name the ancient Greeks had for a city on Crete. In any case, we now think that Knossos had around 100,000 people living there in around 1500 BC. The archaeologists have discovered multi-story buildings and an extensive water management system that managed water supply, rainwater runoff, and wastewater. Indoor plumbing, including flush toilets, have been discovered. Remember what they said about hot and cold running water? Yeah, and remember what I said about flush toilets? Take that again, crapper! Some people believe that Knossos was destroyed in the same event that destroyed Thera, and that Thera and Knossos formed the empire referred to in the Atlantis legend. There's a very cool video on YouTube, produced by the History Channel, that you can watch detailing what they found on the subject. I highly recommend it. Search on YouTube for 
Lost Worlds Atlantis full episode. S1E3. I was kind of surprised you didn't mention Ignatius Donnelly in his 1882 book, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. I think a lot of our current ideas about Atlantis come from this book, such as it's possessing advanced technologies and it's being involved in an ancient war between good and evil. I think that's the source of most of those ideas. Some of the facts he set out to prove in this book are Atlantis existed in the Atlantic Ocean opposite the Mediterranean Sea. Plato's piece on Atlantis was historical fact and not just a uh, parable. Parable. Good word. Atlantis was the home of man's first civilized culture. He also said that the Atlanteans spread out to colonize the Gulf of Mexico region, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, the Pacific Coast, the South America, the Mediterranean Coast, and the West Coast of Europe and Africa, as well as inland to the Baltic. He says that Atlantis was the archetype of the Garden of Eden and the Elysian Fields from Greek mythology and any other super cool place. He said the gods and goddesses of the ancient Greeks, Phoenicians, Hindus, and Scandinavians were in actuality just stories about Atlantis's royalty and local heroes. Finally, at least finally, as far as I'm going to get into, he has 13 and I ain't going to cover them all. The destruction of Atlantis was the source for all the world's great deluge myths. In turn... He got his inspiration from this guy named Charles Etienne Brasseur du Bourbourg or something like that. Yeah, nice job. <laughs> this guy was a specialist in Mesoamerican studies, and he speculated that there was a connection between the Mayan civilization and that of Lost Atlantis, which you did mention earlier. He believed Atlantis possessed a further advanced civilization than anything at the time in Europe and Asia. He theorized the origin of European and Persian languages actually had roots in the language of indigenous Americas, which he said proved his belief that constant trans-global contact was going on between the Eastern and Western hemisphere colonies of Atlantis and Atlantis itself. Helena Blatavasky and her Theosophical Society. Man, they ate Donnelly's book up. They were pushing his ideas. And Edgar Casey also in his published visions of Atlantis. A lot of his ideas seem to have come from the same book. Personally, I tried to read it, but it just didn't grip me. I'm also surprised that you didn't include the Bimini Road. Don't some people claim that that's part of Atlantis's architecture. I think that geologists all say it's a natural formation, but it's fun to think about. So there you have it. Atlantis, sunken land of mystery and Patrick Duffy. And all the kids are saying, who the frick is Patrick Duffy? Thanks for the tour, John. You're welcome, Jim. Hope you learned something. I think I did. What do you think about is co-written by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Our theme music is provided by podsummit.com. Thanks to Hunter Dumermuth for production assistance. 
And as always, a special thanks to you, our listeners. Please take the time to rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. Drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm, wdouta, for updates on releases. Copyright 2020 by John Gordos and Jim Dumruth.